He said, no, 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 Scott. And literally right to my face, took out both of his hands and he kind of flipped them back and forth and said, is there like something that would open and close? That's where the light bulb went on. I was like, you know what? I don't know, but let me go check it out. Yeah, I mean, I always, well, I don't joke around. I always talk about. We know you don't like any of my jokes. (laughs) Early years, it was feast or famine. It was mostly famine. Does that drive you still today? It absolutely does. Yeah, I don't know why they would say that either. I did probably the most important thing for the manufacturing business, and that was. And the faster you can figure that out, the better you are. We have all this great business, blah, blah, blah. And then the fall of 2008 happened and everything just went away. My name is Scott Selzer. I'm the CEO and founder of Structure. My age is 44. I'm located in just north of Atlanta in a town called Dahlonega, Georgia. I was going to try to pronounce it, but I wanted you to pronounce it because I'm looking <laughs> yeah. at it. D-A-H-L-O-N-E-G-A. <laughs> Most people are like Dahlonega and it's no, it's Dahlonega. So it's fine. How many people live there? I mean, it's a smaller rural town. We decided, well, I actually live in Dawsonville, which is just south of there, but our plant is in Dahlonega and that's, you know, it's a little farther out, probably about an hour from north of Atlanta, but our thing is we're a manufacturer, so trucks can go anywhere. So it was actually better for us to move further north of Atlanta, yet cheaper property and so forth. Okay. And so what is your company? So Structure is a unique pergola and cabana manufacturer. And so we actually manufacture an all aluminum, extruded aluminum powder coated cabana and pergolas that actually have the louvers that rotate or pivot that open and close. So when they open, you control how much sunlight you want to let in, ventilation, so forth. And then when it's closed, it keeps out the rain. So it's a really unique product that's just catching on. We're kind of still in the infancy of the marketplace, but it's growing rapidly. So we're excited about the future. Is this just for outdoor spaces? Yes, residential, commercial, and industrial. So in the residential sector, it'd be your backyard, like, right? It can really go anywhere in your backyard, on a deck, on a patio. It can go out on a boat dock. I mean, wherever you want it, wherever you need shade and shelter. So we always say that we're in the sunshade shelter business. And how big is your business? We're going to do about 50 million this year. We're just a little over 10 years old. And we've been on the Inc. 5000 uh, last seven years running. And uh, we're up to, I think, about 160 employees now. Just kind of crazy to think of. Um, you just go back two or three years ago and we would have been less than 50. Oh, well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Do you ever think you'd have a company this big? Well, when we first, well, I first started it, uh, no. I mean, to, to answer you quite honestly, it was a thing that I said, this is a great little niche and I think we can grow this to four or $5 million and this is going to be a great little business. But then once we got into it, it's been just amazing to see the growth of it. And I mean, think about it. Everybody needs shelter from the weather, right? So you have it both residentially, commercially, especially this post-COVID world has really opened up outdoor seating. Now people have to go outside if they want to eat and so forth. So restaurants, we do a lot of hospitality, but we've gotten into other things. People are wanting to come back to work. So these large companies are doing outdoor working pods and all different types of things. So shelter from the weather, all types of weather is important. And I don't think it's a niche anymore. It's a very large market and it's just growing. So we're excited about that. And if anyone wants to check out the website, I suggest they do while we're doing this interview is structure, S-T-R-U-X-U-R-E.com, right? 
Yeah, correct. So you'd spell structure correctly and leave out the CT in the middle and put an X in. Yeah, because it's beautiful, the pictures you have on there. I mean, whoever did that did a fantastic job. I mean, I'm sure you're, you know, what you make is fantastic, but I think sometimes people can do a good job of making a product, but don't have a great way of like displaying it. But your pictures are maybe the best that I've ever seen on a website for, as far as displaying an outdoor product. You know, to be honest, that's been one of the little things in our secret sauce, taking marketing very seriously. And obviously we have a beautiful product, but spending the extra money to get the right photography and the right videos and all the different things that go along with it and getting your brand out there in the right way. This is not the cheapest shade, right? You can go out there and buy dumb pergolas and awnings and whatever else you want for a lot cheaper than ours. However, this is what people really want. And it looks like you even have apps to open and close them or something like that if I scroll all the way to the bottom. Yeah. I mean, one of the cool things about our product is that we're bringing technology outdoors. And so we're really in what I call architectural automation. And so this is an architectural product, a pergola cabana, and we are actually bringing automation to it. So the louvers are the slats. They rotate open and close. They interlock. They create rain channels that take it to our gutter system from there. They're taking the water out. And so then you're able to bring a lot of technology. When you motorize something, you're able to bring AI into it. So artificial intelligence with a bunch of sensors. We have rain sensors. So when it starts to rain, it closes itself. We have wind sensors. So when it gets too windy, let's say down in Florida where you have hurricanes and so forth, you want it to open back up so it doesn't damage the system. Up north, you know, where it freezes and so forth, we have actually temperature sensors so that it'll actually open and not allow the louvers to freeze together. AI is, uh, has been a, a really big thing for us, and we look forward to it in the future. Are your two products basically the Pergola X and the Cabana X? Yeah, correct. I really, actually, for the last 10 years, it's been the Pergola X. We have four models. We have our Pivot 6, which has been our driving force. And then we introduced the Pivot 6 XL probably about three or four years ago. And that's really a larger gutter system, a larger beam system so that we can carry further spans, but also we can take a lot more water. So a louvered system is only as rain tight as fast as you can get water out. And so if you have a larger gutter system, you can take more water and you can get it out. I think that's one of our big differentiators and that allows our clients to be able to use it year round. Pergola, if anyone doesn't know what that even is, is there an easy way for you to describe it versus me? Because I'm not sure the easiest way to describe it. So pergolas, cabanas, trellises, they've been around for centuries. I mean, going all the way back to the ancient Greek and Roman times. They look beautiful, but the problem is they weren't functional. So we really do the modern day pergola. And I kind of equate it to the car. You have Henry Ford with a Model T and you have Elon Musk with a Tesla. What is the difference? They both have four tires, right? But the difference is technology. And, and that's really what we've been able to do with the pergolas and cabanas. We brought technology into it. I noticed you got the Pergola X, like I said, the Cabana X. But I was wondering, do you have any plans for like a Pergola Triple X? I always have a lot of ideas. So yes, we have plans for other products. Actually, another product that we're launching is called TimberX. And what TimberX is actually a technology that transforms not just our Pergola X and our Cabana X, but it's actually with the finish. So all of our pergolas and cabanas are extruded aluminum, like I said, but they're powder coated. And a powder coat is a baked on finish. We have two plants. We have a plant just north of Atlanta and we have a plant just outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. And we do that just really being a bi-coastal company. Our stuff is very long to ship. And so it makes a lot of sense to have one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. And in our East Coast facility, we have powder coating. So we were able to powder coat our normal powder coat, but 
we were able to acquire this machinery that is really a proprietary type of thing that allows us to do decorative powder coating. And what decorative powder coating is, is actually where you wrap the extrusions with this film and then inside the film is actually pigment. And in this case, it can be any picture, but the picture that we use is wood grain. So Timber X is actually this really cool powder coated technology of using wood grain to put onto extrusions. So in a pergola and cabana, you think traditionally wood because that was kind of the cheaper materials that people would use, but it's just not a good material over time. It degrades, right? And so aluminum doesn't. So this powder coated, decorative powder coated wood grain finish allows us to give the beauty of wood for years and years and years without rotting and decaying and so forth. So we look at getting into other product lines, not just cabanas and pergolas, but also into decking, railing, fencing, siding. So we're really excited about what that future holds for Timberex. Well, Scott, my reference was to an outdoor bedroom or something of that nature. (laughs) I got you. You didn't enjoy my joke. Most people don't, don't worry. (laughs) No problem. So, I mean, it really, our mission is to bring the indoors out. I'll give you just an example. When we are in our last house that I was at, we had like a little builder deck. I ripped that out and we put in a nice deck and we put a Pergola X in. And that totally changed the way I live because I never went outdoors. I never went in my back deck. I never wanted to enjoy it. It was too hot. So we really talk about being in the comfort business. If you're comfortable, you're going to be sitting outside. You kind of hit on that earlier. You like being outside, but only when you're really comfortable. So that's what our pergolas and cabanas allow people to do is be comfortable outdoors. Well, did you get a discount on your pergola X? <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> oh, that, that's good. I was making sure. Well, I'll try to get people more comfortable even going outdoors. You know, maybe they can fall asleep with their pergola triple X, or maybe they won't be sleeping at all, but who knows? But Thank you for the rundown. I think it made sense what you're talking about. Again, I think check the website out. Really one of the most beautiful websites I've seen with displaying a product and what it looks like and what it can do. But why don't we go ahead and rewind it to how you got started? Where do you think the best place is to start? Probably the best place to start is where I was born. You can't get any uh, better than that, right? So I don't think we can go any earlier than that. Well, maybe nine months earlier, but that's about it. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) We don't need to go there. So um, interesting enough, I was born in Taipei, Taiwan. Wow. All right. This is interesting. Yeah. So and what's interesting about that is my dad was a high up sea level type of guy and he was running an electronics plant over there. So it just happened to be there when I was born. Actually, both my sister and I were born there. My dad being a high up level sea guy, we moved a lot. I've lived in places like California and Montana and Indiana and Michigan. And so we moved a lot as a kid just because that's what happened. He'd, he'd get the promotion. We'd go here, we'd go there. Well, real quick, was your mother Taiwanese or your father doesn't sound like he was? No, uh, neither of them were. They're both born in the States and from Southern Indiana. Okay. So yeah, you grew up there and you said you moved around. Was it all of Southeast Asia or what? Well, it's funny, you know, going back to my dad, a lot of people were like, was he in the military? Why'd you guys move so much? And he was in the military, but that was before he had kids. And yeah, actually my dad is a pretty interesting fellow and he's actually one of our advisors now at Structure. And it's been fun to kind of bring him into a business. You know, usually it's the other way around, you know, with a family business, it's usually your dad hands it down to the kid and the kids take it from there and they hand it down. And it's been a total opposite thing, which has been unique and interesting. But he was a pretty interesting fellow. He flew 235 combat missions in Vietnam. 
And, you know, we always joke, and I think we still joke to this day that was he CIA? What was he doing? Why was he always gone as a kid going on these business trips? And so that was always interesting growing up. And he was always, uh, you know, in the Far East or he's over in the Middle East or he's doing something. So he's a pretty interesting cat. You said you moved around. Like, so for what point of time? Like up till you were five or 10 years old? Like, just give us a rundown of where you moved around. So I was born there, lived there from to about two years old, came back to the States for two years, and then we went back to Taiwan for another two years. So I was kind of really messed up because I was talking Taiwanese, I was talking Mandarin. So I was six years old. You know, I think I went, you know, two or three years to preschool, some of that type of stuff, which I think helped me later on just being a little older and, uh, you know, than what my other classmates were. And that helped me as a, in sports. Okay. And then eventually, when did you kind of finally settle back in the U.S.? And so, you know, right, we came back stateside when I was six years old. And from there... And what year was that? Would have been about 83, 84. I'm old. No, you're not. I think it just helps because then in my mind, when I can picture 1983 versus 2003, you know, you coming back to Indiana or wherever you're going to end up moving. So you come back and then you're back in the U.S. basically for the rest of your life? Exactly. Yeah. And, and like I said, I kind of call Michigan home. That's where I grew up in Cairo, Michigan, which is up in the thumb of Michigan. You know, Michiganders always like to put out their mitten, right? And show you where they're from. So I'm from the thumb. I didn't know that, but now I do. And I think everyone, I don't, I don't know if anyone else knew that <laughs> until they just learned that. So the, yeah. the, when you're saying the thumb, it's the second part, like Michigan is kind of cut in two parts, right? Well, you have, yeah, you have the upper peninsula and you have the lower peninsula. And I lived in the lower peninsula. And if you put up your, like a mitten, right? Like your hand, your thumb would be where I lived. So up in the thumb, it was a uh, farmlands, lots of farms, hardworking people, that Midwestern hard work ethic, all that type of things. And Really enjoyed my childhood. It was great experience. Really got into sports, learned, you know, to be very competitive and so forth. Kind of a three-sport athlete in high school. I kind of excelled in football and wrestling. Football kind of won out and I got a, a full ride scholarship to Western Michigan University, which is uh, obviously in Michigan as well, but it's over on the uh, southwest side of the state. I was going to say the Western part. I know I'm not that yeah. dumb, but I figured that. <laughs> Let's help everyone out. So if you take your right hand and you look at it, so the palm is facing your face, that's the way Michigan looks like. And then you're at the thumb part right there where you were born and raised. Correct. Just put your hand together, your right hand, and look at it, and you see your thumb. I was about in the middle of that thumb in Cairo, Michigan. It was one of those things. I think they were supposed to be called Cairo. And somebody left off the eye, and so it was just Carroll, Michigan, and that's where you got that. Yeah, you like to sound, live in these interesting naming towns, huh? So you went to Western Michigan on a football scholarship. What position did you play? Well, I started off, I came in as a linebacker, and I think it was after, well, we were all redshirted. That's what they did back then. It was nice. I was able to have five years of, you know, paid for school. Our first redshirt season, which we do, I, I wasn't able to play. We went like two and nine and our coach that brought us all in, he got fired and they brought in a new coach from Texas. And from there we had like, I think it was my yeah true freshman year. I They came in, I was a little overweight. So they pushed me down to the defensive line. And so I was on, I was a defensive end for a while. I think that year I even got in as a three technique, which is a tackle. I wasn't a very big tackle of playing division one. So that was interesting. But right at that time. How big were you? I was about 240, 250 pounds. And so that's not very big for a defensive lineman. That's more of like a linebacker. But it was actually, I think that game, either that or the Ohio game. And 
our starting fullback uh, had a season ending injury and they said, Selzer, come on over, you know, come over and play fullback. We know you can do that. So I actually, I transferred over. So the last three and a half years of my college career, I played fullback at Western Michigan and it started and it was a really good time. We had great teams. It was back in the day where we were playing Marshall and you had, you know, Chad Pennington and Randy Moss and all those type of things. So it was a good time. Did you get any concussions playing fullback? I probably did. Can't remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, in case people don't follow football, that's like the most devastating position, I feel like, especially because you're blocking for the running back who's coming behind you, right? But it's like, I mean, the head injuries, especially then, you're just throwing your whole body into it. Yeah. People are known to be like pretty tough who play that position. Yeah, fullback, you know, I call it the unicorn position now because you don't see it anymore, right? It's, I mean, I think I was the last fullback. I mean, once I stepped off that field, you know, back in 2000, I think I was the last fullback ever to play at at Western Michigan because they don't even play with fullbacks anymore in college football, it doesn't seem. So it's a kind of a dinosaur uh, position. Yeah. You're so good. They had to retire the position. They said no one can fill your shoes. So that's right. That's at least how I took it. Yeah. So after you graduate from there, you get drafted into the NFL or what? That would have been awesome, (laughs) but no. Actually, I was married my senior year, right before senior year 2000, to my beautiful wife, Jill. We were actually both had teaching degrees, so we were both looking to become teachers. At that time, Michigan was already a little bit depressed in the economy, and so we were looking at really two places, which is kind of funny. We looked at Atlanta because Georgia paid okay for teaching. And then we also were looking out in Las Vegas, which is kind of funny because that's where our two plants are now. It's kind of interesting. And rewind a little bit, I did decide to go into teaching. Um, One of my reasons not to go in and get a business degree was really because of my dad. And not because my dad, I love my dad, but he was always gone as a kid. And I was like, I'm not going to do that to my kids. I'm not going to go into business. I'm going to be a teacher. And so that's how that all started. And So both my wife and I got a teaching job in 2001, and we moved to Atlanta, just north of Atlanta, Georgia. Are you struggling? Struggling. To find a business checking account that fits your needs as a small business owner? Looking for a checking account that does more than hold your money? We all know those traditional financial institutions neglect the needs of small business owners just like you. They all charge higher fees, and as a business owner, that comes out of your bottom line. Well, you don't have to worry about any of that anymore because Nearside is helping small businesses save money. My favorite features are their three layers of cash back. They got one, universal cash back, which is 1% cash back on any purchase made on the card. Number two, you got premium cash back, where you can earn up to an additional 5% on select business vendors like Shopify, Amazon, Walmart, and Home Depot, and everyday expenses like gas stations, restaurants, hotels, and car rentals. And number three, they got the easy savings cash back, which MasterCard has partnered with tens of thousands of businesses across the U.S. to bring you up to 10% off select purchases. With Nearside, there's no minimum balance requirement. Nearside Business Checking helps you grow your business by saving you money and providing valuable rewards and discounts. With Nearside Rewards, you can earn cash back automatically on all the business purchases you already make. And they offer seamless online banking experience for on-the-go entrepreneurs. And you can check it out right now. Go check out the Nearside app in both the Google Play Store and Apple Store. To learn more about Nearside and how they can help your business, Go to nearside.com forward slash inspiration and sign up for a Nearside business checking account or click the link in the description below to sign up for your Nearside business checking account. My last name, which is 
is a very renowned last name on the island. There are only two branches of this family. One is extremely rich. What I mean by rich is this family, they're billionaires. So that's you. I'm the other branch. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want to be. Exactly. <laughs> so if you want to jump on a call with yours truly and discuss how to become a billionaire, well then join Patreon today. I guess what actually made the decision between the two? Because you said you're between the two. Was it just because it paid a little bit more in Atlanta? I had an aunt that lived down here. So it was kind of like, well, I guess a family. The pay was about the same. And that would have been, obviously, Las Vegas would have been a lot farther away from, especially my wife had all her family from Michigan and so forth. And so we decided to go south. It was warmer, definitely warmer. That was a big deal to us. And it paid okay. And so we decided to ride out of college, get in a U-Haul and head south. Okay. And so you head south and do you become a teacher for a while? Yeah. So I actually had taught in uh, Fulton County for seven years. I started my career three years in third grade, which is kind of funny. Third grade teacher, there's not many males. And so it was very easy to get a job. It was probably one of my most fun times was uh, teaching third grade. And then I taught four years of sixth grade math and social studies. So seven years of third grade and six extra years of? Total of seven years. So three years of third grade and four years of sixth grade. Okay, gotcha. And then what happened? You got tired of the sixth graders? Yes and no. Actually, rewind back to that first year after, I think it was the first year of teaching, you come home and you have like two and a half months of, you don't have to do anything, but they're still paying you as a teacher. And I was driving my wife nuts and she was like, you got to get a job. You got to do something. And so I kind of went back to what I was really good at, which was building things. I thought you were going to back playing football. Well, I mean. Playing third graders in football, showing them how a fullback really was. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I was the all-time quarterback <laughs> at recess, but yes. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So you said you were good at building? Yeah. So uh, growing up, we moved a lot. So that meant, you know, we were going to a new house. My dad was kind of a farm kid, had a lot of, you know, he was good at everything kind of thing. We'd get there instead of hiring a, you know, a remodeling company or, or construction company to come do something. It was always me and my dad in the backyard, building the deck, building fences, building out a basement, whatever it took. So I learned a lot from my dad growing up just building. So it was one of the things that I enjoyed to do. And I was like, I turned to my wife and I said, you know what? I'm going to start a construction company. And she's like, okay, great. She's like, where are you going to find people? I said, well, there has to be other handy teachers. So I was blessed. I was able to find some handy teachers that were good at building things as well. And we started a company called Schools Out Construction. So when school is out, we are doing construction. It was a unique time. This was in the early 2000s. Atlanta was booming. You had people that were, you know, obviously wanting work done from we built decks and pergolas, uh, dumb pergolas, and to finishing basements and doing all that type of stuff. And really learn, you know, kind of that side of that business because we just didn't sub out our work. We did a lot of ourselves. So it was kind of hands-on and people like that. So we kind of really grew by word of mouth. And just because we were a lot different than most contractors and, you know, most contractors, and especially these days, I mean, they just don't even show up or they don't email you. They leaving cigarette butts in your yard, whatever that is. We were young professionals. We answered emails. We got quotes on time. We went to your house when we said we were going to be at your house. We worked and, and we worked from sunup, sundown, all those different types of things. So we just, we did what we said and we grew a, a quite well, you know, off remodeling construction business on the side. Well, how big did it get? 
It was big enough where in 2008, I decided, I said, I told my wife, I decided to, hey, I'm going to retire from teaching and I'm going to go do this, you know, full time. And she said, what, you nuts? This is crazy. But we were actually making a lot more in the summertime than we were all year teaching, which don't get me into what, you know, teachers make and all that type of stuff. And so did you do it just for the money at that point in time? Yeah, we had our first child and, you know, it was one of those things where having a family and two teacher salary, it was, hey, how do you make some extra money? And hey, the economy was still good. I did not see, I mean, talk about timing. This was 2008. I did not see what was happening in the fall of 2008. And so we had like six months of booked out business. And so we all felt great about it, right? Like, hey, we're going to, we have all this great business, blah, blah, blah. And then the fall of 2008 happened and everything just went away. It was crazy. When you say we, did other teachers quit and decide to do full-time with you as well? There was one other teacher that decided to do it full-time with me. So we were both, you know, just kind of went out on a limb and went into it. And we were sitting here, you know, when everything was happening with the economy in late 2008 and going, oh my goodness, you know, can we get back into teaching? What are we going to do? So right at that time was actually when I had a client that had some pretty a long story, but the client had some leaking issues. He had a patio over his kitchen downstairs, and every time it rained hard, they would start to get water seeping down into their drywall and dripping and so forth. So we got in, we investigated the problem, found out that when they put in their patio up top, they put in the membrane like they were supposed to, but then they put screws all through it. And so the water was just following the screws and going down. And so I gave them an option, you know, gave them a price on ripping that out and doing it right. He was like, no, Scott, can we just cover it? And I said... Sure. And so I gave them all the different traditional, you know, hey, we can put in this patio cover and we can put this type of hip roof in. We can do this type of shed roof and this type of pergola. And he said, no, 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 Scott. And literally right to my face, took out both of his hands and he kind of flipped them back and forth and said, is there like something that would open and close? And that's where the light bulb went on. I was like, you know what? I don't know, but let me go check it out. So I I went home and I did what anybody would do. I Googled it, right? And so I found out that this product actually existed. And now going back about 45 years ago to Australia, obviously Australia, there's a lot of sunny weather down there. And so they came out with this louvered pergolas and cabanas that actually open and close. They were just getting into the United States, but mainly only in the Southwest side of it. So California, and Phoenix area and so forth. So I decided, I said, this could be a good little niche. And so we actually started a company in early 2009 called Adjustable Patio Covers. And so we decided to kind of have a good, better, best product line. And our best was going to be this louvered system, this louvered roof, this louvered pergola. So we went with a company actually out of Israel and some out of Australia. And we went to the Atlanta Home Show in 2009 And that was, you know, obviously at the height of, you know, the economy breakdown and all that type of stuff. And we sold 35 systems off it. And I said, this is a great little niche and they're selling even this economy. And so what I learned about that was a little higher end type of product in somebody's backyard. It doesn't matter what happens to the economy. People are still going to be able to afford something like this in their backyard. And we kind of took that and we just, we went gangbusters with it. And we've never looked back. I can talk about a lot of things in between there and now. Mainly the product that we got in just wasn't up to par. So the product wasn't there. 
Before we get to the details of that, do you mind if we go back to the light bulb moment and then we'll just take it year by year? I mean, I've got so many questions with the sure. you know details here. So after you went to go Google it, you finally found the company in Australia, right? That looked like they did it. And so did you actually do that for that guy? Did you put in this advanced pergola, if you will? Yeah. The, the funny thing about this all is I ended up not doing anything with the guy, but he was the one that gave me the idea. So I always talk about that story just because that was where the light bulb happened, right? I think maybe it was the economy or whatever it was. Again, this was the fall of 2008 and things were a little crazy then. So I think he decided to do something else or he didn't do something for a couple of years, but he gave me the idea. And as I said, we kind of, we said, well, this great idea. We found some different manufacturers in the States. There was like two of them at the time. They were both out in the Southwest United States. Nobody had brought this idea to East of the Mississippi. So we were the first ones. And I was just like, this is a great concept. Now you're taking a pergola, a dumb pergola, and you're making the slats open and close. You're making it much more functional, right? So instead of the weather dictating what's happening, you're now in control with a remote or what have you. The pergola, the original ones, like the way that I always envisioned them were just wood slats, right? That are like two by fours or two by sixes or something like that, that run perpendicular or whatever across. So that's what you're saying is like the water could get in where that guy was talking about. And then he was taking like, you know, if there's slats that could close kind of like a AC vent or something like that. He gave you that idea. You're talking to him about this. Had construction basically stopped for everybody, anyone who was doing projects? Yeah. So all of our construction progress pretty much dried up. There's, you know, little odd jobs that we were doing, but that we kind of really saw the opportunity we got with one of the manufacturers here in the States that actually their company was headquartered out of Israel of all places. And we took that system to that 2009 Atlanta home show and where we sold 35 systems off of it. And then it was great. We sold all these systems, but then it took weeks and weeks and weeks, sometimes months and months to get the product from Israel. Then it would come in and we'd open up the back of a the semi and it would be a mangled mess. And you're just like, it's not like you can just go down to Home Depot and get another piece, right? It's all custom made. A lot of those different types of frustrations throughout 2009, 2010, we decided, I think it was probably somewhere around 2010. I was just like, man, I can just do this a lot better. And so I always had that engineering mind, that building mind. And so I got with some engineers and got some with designers and we came up with what is now structure. At the time, I decided to name it Arcadia. And that was kind of a funny story. I was driving down to Naples, Florida to meet with our structural engineer to get all the different wind calcs and all that type of stuff for the system. Because I said at that time, the louvered system was, I think, meant to up to about 90 miles an hour, which means it would have been great for most of the interior United States, but anywhere coastal such as Florida and places like that, it wouldn't meet the code. And so when I set out to make the better louvered pergola, I decided to say, hey, I'm going to go down to Florida, get with an instructional engineer. We're going to get this to meet those hurricane rated things. And so we built this kind of over the top type of system. And so it met the the wind ratings for Florida, but by doing that, it was actually allowing us to then even get to the snow loads up north. So all the way up into Canada, we sell a lot of systems. But up till you making it yourself, let's go back to the home patio show. You sold 30 to 40 of them. Were they all in the Atlanta area? Yes. They're all in Atlanta. Yes. Because then you had to go install them, right? Yeah. So we did, you know, I was the one at the home show. I was the one going on the appointment. And then once the systems started to arrive into us, we would take them down to the client and we would install. I kind of did it all from sales and marketing to actually installing them as well. 
Yeah. Was your buddy still with you too? Was it two of y'all or just you? He decided to go back to teaching. I kind of got that entrepreneurial bug and said, you know what, all in type of mentality and got into it. And he was like, yeah, you know, this was, you know, I think the fall of 2008 and everything that else happened. And so he had an opportunity to go back to teaching and I wished him well and he went on his way. All right. So yeah, you were a one-man shop? Pretty much. One of the things I did was I got a little, uh, I don't know, it was like a scion or something like that. And I wrapped it right. And I actually put a system on the back that opened and closed as I went down the road. I just remember, I mean, if you know Atlanta, Atlanta has the perimeter, the 285, and I'd just be driving around that going to three or four appointments a day and just praying for a sale, right? I mean, this was 2009. It was a little bit different back then. When you said you put a system on the Scion, I mean, I'm trying to imagine what this looks like. Can you describe it a little bit better? Yeah. So we decided to call our company Adjustable Patio Covers. People didn't know what these adjustable pergolas or patio covers were all about. So we actually took and mounted on the back window, the system. And so it had like, I don't know, four or five louvers that would open and close. And so it's all hooked up. It's all low voltage. So I was able to bring it in, put it on some batteries and I would be able to go down the road, push a button and it would open and close in the back. And so stopping at stoplights and so forth, people would look at it. And then you had your number and your website there and people would go and check us out. Was it built on top of your car or like inside? Because the sign was a little boxy kind of car. Yeah, boxy. It was actually vertically on the back window. Okay. You know, and now I'm looking out because I'm looking outside my window right now. So you had like blinds. It's just blinds, right? So people got the idea of what it did, right? Yes, correct. I had a whole Scion wrap. So it had some nice pictures of our systems and stuff like that. So people could see it in a horizontal application as well. How much money did you have saved up from the construction business to adjusting to the adjustable patio systems? So I... You didn't like that transition? I thought that was good. I just came up with that. Yeah, that was that was awesome. No, you didn't think so. That's fine. <laughs> so obviously, fall of 2008, going into 2009, I went to my wife, who still was teaching at the time, and we were really living on her salary for a long, long time. So one teacher salary, you know, a young kid, it wasn't fun. I think we had about $5,000 in our savings account, and I took that out and put that into adjustable patio cover. So it was literally all of our life savings. You know, we were a young teacher, paycheck to paycheck type of thing. And I took the $5,000. That's where we bought the first systems, went to that initial Atlanta home show. And then we started selling from there. And we were able to take deposits down to buy the material and get it here and then go in and get it installed. And so it was kind of a cash flow thing. Obviously, when you're a young company, it's all cash is king. That's very, very important. Can't stress that enough. Well, stress that more. Can you reemphasize that even then? Because it sounds like at least you got down deposits, right? Sounds like the pay for everything that came over from Israel. Yeah, correct. So one of the unique things that even to today that we make our even distributors do is we do not do net 30 or we do not give terms. And I've kind of did that because of the early years with myself. And so a contractor, let's say selling one of our systems goes to somebody's home they give them a price, they take the material, the shipping, and then they put on their margins, they put up you know, labor and all that type of stuff on it, and they go and sell it to the end user. So I was doing the same thing in Atlanta, and I always took money down, usually a half down. And by taking a half down, that really paid for the whole system, so I could go buy it from the manufacturer. And so even to today, and one of the reasons as a manufacturer why we have such great cash flow is that we make people give us half down on the system which is really kind of a quarter down, if that makes sense. And it's one of the reasons that I've been able to still retain ownership in the company is because exactly of that. It's been a huge, huge deal for us. 
Whereas other people might say, hey, you can pay me 30 days afterwards when you're saying net 30 versus you getting half up even today. Yeah. And it's a huge difference because net 30 to a contractor. Okay. Let's go back to thinking about contractors. They're really might be really good at what they do. Swinging a hammer. They are not good business people. And so I was kind of like this utility player, a professional. I went to college. I, you know, I was good at math. So accounting and all those type of things, I understood it. And I think that was one of the best things that we could ever do was actually to take those deposits and then take those deposits and not act like they were profit because they're not. They're somebody else's money. It's not your money. And so you take that money and you go buy the material. Then you get the material in, you get out and you get it installed. Now you have profit from that. You got to pay all your people and blah, 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 blah. But it's a really good way of doing business. And we've been able to kind of keep that model even now as a manufacturer to even our dealers. And that's been a great thing for them to keep them honest and make sure that they're doing it right. But it's also helped our cash flow as a manufacturer. And then when do they pay the other half to you today? Uh, so today, a contractor puts in an order with us since everything is literally cut to size. So we're taking the material, we're cutting it, we're powder coating. It's like your job, right? It's a very highly customizable. It's not like we're making these and just putting them up on the shelves. They're not widgets, right? They're all custom made. And so they will go and pay half of their system. And then once it's ready, we have them pay the other half in shipping and we ship it out to them. But see if a good contractor would have already gotten the deposit from the end customer and that would have covered all of that. So they're able to have some cash flow and it helps the business as well. And I just think it's a really smart way of doing it where we've seen some dealers get on the other side of it. And that's not a good thing, right? Where you're taking deposits and you think it's profit because it's not. And so I think it's just the responsible thing to do. Hey guys, if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, then you know my secret weapon to getting more done. And that's Magic Mine, the world's first productivity drink. Well, apparently it's working for our audience too, because the Magic Mind team told me, Austin, we want to sponsor even more episodes of your amazing podcast. Well, thank you, Magic Mind team, for supporting the podcast. But I'm not the only one that will be doing the thanking during this ad read. You know who else will be? Well, that will be you, of course, because you just ordered some Magic Mind. And you're going to be thanking yourself for how much smarter you feel after drinking this magical elixir. If you're looking for an edge over your competition, then this is the drink for you. Magic Mind is a nootropic shot of healthy, natural ingredients that help you decrease stress, boost blood flow, and keep you focused. See, when I first got my hands on Magic Mind, I won't lie, I didn't think it would work at all. Plus, it looked like one of those grassy vegan hippie drinks. But I was able to get over my ego and down the thing anyways. And since then, I haven't looked back. I've been taking Magic Mind on my normal work days, which is only Wednesday, of course. And instead of getting my normal two hours of work done, I feel like I've knocked out 40 hours. Imagine that, being 20 times more productive. Well, that could be you. Once you order your special case of these nootropic shots, all you have to do is go to magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code MILLIONAIRE20 to get 20% off your order. Again, that's magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code MILLIONAIRE20 to get 20% off your order. I don't have a scalable internet business. So your podcast, your guests that you interview resonates a lot more. Uh, you know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So, you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to. Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai? Yeah, so it's the capital of the UAE. 
he actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah, uh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him. So I helped, finally. No, no, just talking to you has uh, helped, uh, helped get my thinking going. Thanks for giving us that oversight, even, you know, looking at it today from your perspective. But I guess, yeah, back to your first year when you called it adjustable patio systems, when you were the actual contractor, right? And doing all this, it seems like this was perfect for you because it didn't seem like at the time you were ever planning on becoming a manufacturer. There is a huge difference between you just doing the installs right with someone else's product versus you, I guess, brainstorming how to make a better one. And since you were able to install 30 to 40 of them, right, I guess you're able to see some of the flaws. Yeah, I mean, I always, well, I don't joke around. I always talk about. Well, you know, you don't like any of my jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Getting back to my point, I always say, look, if there was a best system out there, if there was a better system out there that would have given me not just a great system, but great customer service, because it's not all just about the product. It's about who you do business with too. And it's kind of the whole package. If there was a company out there that would have done that for us, I would still just be a contractor in Atlanta doing really well. But at the time, there was not any of that. And so we kind of looked at it as an opportunity to go, you know what, I think we can do this better. The product needs a lot of work. When I was able to do that, I was able to engineer, like I said, a much more robust system. And then since this was coming out of Australia many years ago, the patents had already run out of Australia. So I was able to get a full utility patent on our system. That really was a game changer. We had the best system and then it was about putting the best company together. So from day one, I knew it was all about the people. Every person I brought into the organization, they made us better. I always joke all the time about firing myself. So, and when I mean firing myself is back in the day, I was doing it all, right? I was taking the orders, sales calls. I was a forklift driver when it came into us. And then I got onto a truck and I went down with the crew and we'd install it. And so as I started to grow the manufacturing side of this company, I knew the only way for us to quickly grow was to fire myself from as many jobs as possible that I was not the best at, right? So it was about bringing better people than myself in, firing myself, letting them go and getting out of their way. I've been able to do that. We have 160 people now and we're rocking and rolling. I'm going to take it as slow as I can with that transition. Is that cool? Yeah. Because I'm sure maybe there's contractors right now who are listening who might do something for plumbing or something else that are like, you know, they install the same type of thing and they want to make this transition. But really, I'm just curious, like even that first year when you were installing the ones from Israel, right, into the Atlanta homes, did you make money that first year as a business? I mean, you know, it was one of those things where we were getting by. We had enough sales to, and enough cash flow. Again, cash is king to survive, right? I brought some money home, but like I said, for many of those first years, my wife's teacher salary, that was kind of getting us by. Yeah. Cause that's what I was trying to figure out if you had made enough profit to slowly make this transition into the manufacturing. Cause it seems like you'd need a lot more money up front, like as you're trying to figure out how to build your own, right. And not just install them. Yeah. So, I mean, I worked very hard. I did a lot of things myself, the marketing, all those type of things is I really poured all the money back in and we actually still do today is we take a lot of our profits and we put it right back into the business. That's the only way you're able to grow without outside capital. And I did take in the early, early years, there was a couple, you know, angel investors, family friends that came in, I think for about 10%. I gave up about 10% of the company for a little bit. Later on, I paid them back off and I'm still 100% owner, but I kind of really go back into deposits, really contribute a lot of that 
to be able to have the cash flow that we needed. You sound like a hard worker. I believe you that you're working hard when you're installing all these systems, but then you have to free up your time to become a manufacturer. You know what I'm saying? So you're going to have to take, I imagine that you had to, you know, take negative money or you weren't making money for the next year or two. Because when I did the calculation, the year 2009, you were 32 years old when you started doing the Israeli ones that you're installing. Yes. So, so you just did that for one year. And after one year, you're like, I'm going to build a better one. Yeah, it was about in the middle of 2010 where I started having another system actually was coming out of the States via kind of Australia. And there's two different types of louvered systems. There's what I call a center pivot system, which is what the structure is today. And there's the back hinge, which is kind of a little cheaper version, which was what Israelis had. So I kind of kept the Israeli system. And then I also brought on this other kind of Australian pivot system. And again, same thing, just couldn't get product in time. I mean, right now we're having huge supply chain issues. This wasn't when we had supply chain issues, just the company just didn't have their act together. And so I couldn't get product in time. And then when it came, it was damaged, all those different types of things. Gosh, it being damaged must have sucked. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was one of these things where we were starting to sell quite a few of these. And I think my first place was about 2,500 square foot warehouse, right? So we'd have to stock up and I bought them in kind of in bulk and louvers would come into me. And I remember when that first 53 foot flatbed showed up and it just had like a ton of material in it. And we were all just probably myself and a couple other guys in the back and we were having to unload it by hand and we didn't have forklifts. It was just some crazy times back then. What it showed me was, hey, these other companies aren't going to be able to scale with me. If we're going to do this, I need to take control. It was more of this eye-opening experience of going, man, this is a great opportunity, but we're going to fail if we stay with these other companies. We're just going to do it ourselves. Yeah, because I guess you're thinking, even if you do a great quote, right? And you tell them a certain time, but if the people, and this is the only product you're kind of installing, if they're not getting it to you on time, it looks horrible on you. I'm kind of sensing, I don't know if, if that's exactly what was happening or if there's other things as well. Yeah, it was exactly what was happening. I mean, it really got back to, you couldn't get the manufacturer on the phone. They would blame it on something else and blame it on that. Then when you get the system in, if you had any issues with installation, they were kind of just manufacturers. They didn't really know how to install it. And I just got fed up. I think it was about middle of 2010. I just, that's where I was just like, hey, and I got with some buddies. I don't think paid them much at all to come up with what the first system we had, which was the Arcadia system. And we kind of bankrolled that to where I was able to get with some extruders because you had to pay for dies, right? So extrusions, if you think about it for your listeners out there, extrusions are a really cool process. It's kind of like Play-Doh. If you remember playing with Play-Doh and kind of going through different dies and you're able to push that Play-Doh through something and it came out a shape on the other side, that's exactly what aluminum extrusions do. So they almost melt the billet of aluminum and then they push it through a die and a shape comes out the other side. And so we were able to kind of just finance that on my own and get enough into where we were able to cut some jobs and start transitioning over to our own system. And that would have been in early 2011. And that's when we incorporated Arcadia. Like I said, I was on my way down to Naples and Arcadia is a town in Florida. It's funny because, yeah, when you said Florida, I recognize that name because I know a lot of cities around the U.S., especially Florida. And I'm like, I think that's a city in Florida. I was wondering if that's how you came up with the name. Well, it's funny. It's, I think every state has an Arcadia. Okay. And I actually, I looked up, I Googled Arcadia and it actually was like a peaceful, tranquil place. And I was like, okay, that kind of goes with what we're trying to do. Right. And so Arcadia kind of stuck and we moved on from there. And early years, it was, like I said, a feast or famine type of thing. It was mostly famine and it was just building the company, right? It was 
I think our first year in sales on the manufacturing side was probably a couple hundred thousand, but on the adjustable patio covers, because I still had both, right? So I was manufacturing really for adjustable patio covers. And then kind of end of 2011, going into 2012, I hired my first employee who's actually still with me today, Ben. I saw him as a great relationship type of guy. So I was like, this guy can go and bring on dealers for me, right? And so we started this dealer campaign, mainly in the Southeast, kind of kept it close to us. And we went out and we have a lot of the same, those dealers that came on end of 2011, 2012 are still with us today. It was just about really bringing good people in like Ben and being able to grow the company and do the right thing. We have six core values at Structure and we live by them every day, but it really just boils down to do the right thing. So that's what we're still doing today. I'm glad you said that. Actually, I just heard that on a podcast last night. And there's one other thing you said that it's so funny. Is this, I don't know exactly when his episode is going to come out, but it's probably going to be likely right before yours or somewhere around that time. A guy named Steve Kinder, he talked about extrusion process because I didn't understand exactly what he was talking about. And it, it's funny, it's exactly what you're talking about. So it's just interesting, all these terms that you learn with the product business and making this transition to manufacturing, like all these are different types of businesses because we're learning from all different types of, of entrepreneurs, but just the details on that are kind of fun. But yeah, so when you're, you, again, you're saying 2010, 33, kind of, you said the first couple of years, you didn't really feel like you made money. Did you just come out neutral or did you actually lose money? Yeah, probably for the first four or five years of Arcadia and that now is structure, we either were breaking even or actually a little under. And that was just because we were putting all the money back into, it was a manufacturing company. It wasn't like we were a software or a computer-based company where you didn't have overhead, right? I mean, we had inventory, really all of our money, if we had money, it was in the form of aluminum and it was out on our shelf in the back. And so you would feel like, hey, I should be rolling in money right now. And you're like, where is it? It's in inventory. And so as a manufacturing company, it's a lot different to be able to scale like we've been able to scale and do it without really raising a lot of capital. So a good testament to our people. Yeah. And, and again, that's what I was alluding to. I just felt like any time I hear manufacturer and think about it, again, it's like the machinery process and everything like that. I felt like you'd have to take on a lot of capital, but it sounds like what was the most that you took on? I know you say you own 100% now, but even in the beginning. You know, in the beginning, it was... 100,000, 200,000? It was a loan for about 100,000. I think 50,000 from one person, 50 from the other, giving up about 5% each. So it was 10% of the company at the time, kind of valuing us at a million dollars at that point in time. This was really early on. This was 2011, 2012 timeframe. That's still not that much. Like normally when I think manufacturers or maybe anyone else, like I would think like millions of up to 10 million or something like that, you know? In a lot, you have to. And with our type of system, we were able to figure out the machinery, the saws that cut our aluminum, and we were able to partner with powder coating companies and we were able to partner with extrusion companies to get the extrusion. And so it was kind of one of these things where you're better together. I always talk about that. And so my wife never tells me that, but okay. <laughs> now that's funny. Now that's funny. I like that. It's not a joke though. Well, because this is actually super interesting to me too, because how are you able to find these people? Is it different to go find customers? And it sounds like obviously you're fantastic at marketing. I wanted to get into that too, but like the find the manufacturers that you can start making, you know, the machinery to cut your product, right? That's way different than in cooling and installing these dumb structures that you had before versus your advanced ones, right? Yeah. So we outsourced a lot of stuff. So 
When I talk about a saw to cut this, it was actually getting a off-the-shelf type of saw like that you'd buy at Home Depot and then modifying it, put the right type of blade on it, put like a misting system on it so that it kept lubed up the saw blade and so forth. So we were able to do it with a very uh, limited budget. And then I was able to go and outsource like the fabrication parts, right? So our system had to have gutter corners and beam connectors and pins and all these different things that, that go along with it. We didn't really manufacture that ourselves. I went out and found fabricators that did that and bought it from them. So they had all that big industrial machinery, if that makes sense. So we didn't like jump right into manufacturing at the beginning. We did the things that we could do on our limited budget. And then we went and partnered with other people to, to figure it out. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I mean, like if I'm looking at your structure, maybe 90% of it, you could do with basic or maybe like 75, you know, basic cuts, right? Long slats or something like that versus like the corner pieces you're saying, and maybe the lighting that you even have today and stuff. But again, I want to go back to it. How are you able to find those people? That helped you get the, you know, the rest of it. Were you Googling? Did you start talking to people in Atlanta? Again, that's a different skill set of finding those people versus finding customers for the actual product. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely different than finding customers. It was kind of just a relationship type of thing, a networking. I've always been big in that. I think your listeners, you know, probably do the same thing. Like going to Home and Garden Show where you're just asking around there and stuff? Yeah, I, I would use that. There's different get-togethers and functions in North Atlanta that I would go to. You know, it would be even down to the banker, right? So you'd talk to your banker. Banker's like, hey, you really need to go talk to this guy over here. He's a good fabricator. And, oh, this is a good extrusion company over here. And, and so it was kind of one of those things where you kind of, through other people, you're able to meet the actual people that you need to talk to and have that relationship with. Okay. So were you going to like industry-specific functions, you're saying? So that probably helped the most? Yeah, that definitely helped. Yes. I mentioned home and garden or something. Was there a certain type of industry that you call this? Like, I don't know if you're just looking at construction industry or going even more niche to find out what these functions are and where these people are. Well, it's a, yeah, we're a building products company, right? Uh, actually getting into furniture with our cabana now. So it's kind of one of those things where a lot of those same type of people are, have the manufacturing. And then with manufacturing, it, it's all the different capabilities. Thankfully, in North Atlanta, there is a lot of machine shops. Getting back to your point of, one of the things that we have to buy a lot of is our pins and they're custom made like pins that go on a CNC machine and pop them out every, they're like, you know, I don't know, they're pretty expensive per pin, right? So my first thing was, and actually when I raised that capital was I'm going to go buy a CNC machine. And so I did that and it, it sounded great because I was going to pay it back in less than a year. And then we're just going to be making a bunch of pins. And I forgot that I didn't have anybody to run that machine. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't sit there and just, you know, make sure the machine was always running. And so thankfully through actually another employee of mine had this person, his name's Bobby, uh, who's still uh, been a great story because he's been able to grow his company with ours. He didn't have a fabrication company at the time. He was working for some other fabricators. And he said, you know, I'll buy that machine off you. I'll make those pins for you. And so we cut a deal to where I actually paid him through the machine through just making parts for us. And then it's kind of, it's evolved into him making our, all these other parts that need to be fabricated for us. And he's been able to build once no company to now he's got a multi-million dollar company supplying us. It's been a really cool thing to watch. I guess the biggest comparison I can make is like, if you're a kid in a neighborhood and you don't have a lawnmower and you tell the person 
you'll use their lawnmower to cut their grass for free, but then you can use that to cut other people's grass, right? That's basically what he did. That's exactly what he did. So he was able to get the machine and then service other people with it, but then also make our parts for it. Gotcha. I always have to dumb it down for people like me. I'm always the dumbest one listening to your story. So actually, it's funny that you're talking about CN machine, CNC machine. I'll give you an episode to listen to. People can check out after this one, right down 195. He has a great story of something similar. Like he could not find someone who was good enough to cut it and, you know, to make the cuts that he needed and everything. And some guy randomly kind of wandered into his place and helped him be able to cut specific parts, which apparently is like way harder than you would think because you're down to like the thinness of your hair, how much it makes a difference with the fabrication, right? And apparently, yeah, that skill set's hard to find. And it's like you said, you bought it, but then you're like, uh, I don't know how to make the cuts, right? So it's funny that he kind of had a similar situation and had a really good story on how he is able to find someone too. So I'll check out episode 195 after this, if anyone's interested in like manufacturing, kind of like what we're talking about here. So yeah, so you find this guy and he's able to help you make the cuts. And so what year was it when you bought the machine? I think that was like 2012. Okay. So it's only a couple of years into it still. Yep, exactly. And I guess you could feel the momentum of the business, but it sounds like you weren't taking much profit out at all. Were you paying yourself anything, like maybe like 30 or 40K a year or something like that? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it was maybe like a teacher salary. So, uh, and we were getting by, it was fine. And I think it was about five years into the business. So uh, what would that be? 2015, I'm looking at. Yeah, about 2015, 2016. Maybe it was, no, it was about 2014. I did probably the most important thing for the manufacturing business, and that was selling adjustable patio covers. So I was so stretched, you know, between trying to run the manufacturing operation and trying to install at the same time and have this retail outlet. And I was just stretched way too much. And I decided to go all into the manufacturing. And so through a mutual friend, again, one of those type of things, I, I found a great guy, his name's Kurt. And he bought our adjustable patio covers company from us for the rights of it in Atlanta, Georgia. And he's been rocking and rolling ever since then. And it's been fun to watch his growth at the same time. But what that allowed me to do was really focus on the product and the people and the process and get it all right. Uh-oh. Are you Marcus Limonis? Yeah, I've listened to him. So. Well, that's what he says all the time, right? Yeah. Product, people, process? And it's very true. Very true. Yeah. So do you not like him? I do. I mean, I... Uh, I kind of, it's funny, you know, people, oh, you're just a teacher. And, and it's like, well, I have a story on that. I'll come back to that in a minute. You know, I have gotten a real life MBA, right? And so self-educating myself, listening to books, listening to people like him. I listen to everything because I can't sit still. So reading is not my forte. I'd rather just listen. So I'm doing something else. And I listen to a lot of books, listen to a lot of podcasts, probably a lot like your listeners. And it's important to take little things from each person's story and make it into your unique little story. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I forget. And just because one person says something on one podcast or said it over and over on a TV show, it doesn't mean they like made it up themselves either. Right. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. It sounded like maybe you might've been annoyed about it or whatever, but yeah, you get all these concepts and you just want to keep learning. Right. And just, again, you were able to do this throughout. So I guess while you were doing all those installs and everything, is that what you were doing? Were you listening to podcasts, trying to become a better business person as you were figuring this thing out? Yeah. I mean, you know, the first like I said, about five years into manufacturing, I think the best decision I could make is kind of get rid of that adjustable paddy cover side and focusing all on it. And we decided to go national. I brought in more people. We had some really good dealers at the time. They were starting to really put marketing and all these other things into it. From the beginning, you kind of talked about marketing a little bit. One of the things that we've been able to do, and I've been really proud of is 
another person that came along the way was internet marketing guy. And so from day one, you know, from building a website to internet marketing, this was back in 2000, you know, people just weren't doing that stuff 10 years ago, right? It was one of these things. Now everybody does, you know, SEO, SEM and all that type of stuff. But back then, especially in our product, we were able to really get it out there because it's educating. It's taking the teacher out of me because people just don't know what this product is. A lot of your listeners have never even seen this unless they just went to structure.com. And so this is a product that you still have to educate people on what it is, let alone they need to have it. And by the way, if you've listened to my podcast ads, I told you, you have to say dot com. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Taking us back to 99. I see. I see. See, you get it. I don't think anyone else do that either. <laughs> the commercials are great back then. Come on. I know. Those were the good old days. But it's funny. So, I mean, you say even people do that today, but I'm telling you, your website still seems like it's better than anyone else's I've seen as far as like displaying that. So it's, it's good that it's top of mind for you. But I was going to ask, so personal life too, it sounds like at some point you got a dog, right? Yeah, you just heard her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you had one kid when he started, right? Yeah, one kid. Uh, we decided- To get rid of him? Well, I actually just got rid of one. She went to Clemson this year, so that was nice, our oldest. But I have two girls, uh, Haley and Hope. And Hope is, uh, she's a eighth grader now. And so she's 13 and all that goes with being a girl and all that good things. But it's great to have two daughters. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Because I was going to ask this transition too. And thank you for taking it slowly, because I think it really does help everyone understand that. It's like personal life. I mean, sounds like you're still married. Still married, yes. Yeah, and you had two daughters. I mean, was personal life still fine? I mean, were, were you spending enough time at home while you're trying to make this transition? I mean, it was kind of funny. I kind of sold going full-time into the business because I'd have more time at home. And my wife actually went with it. So we always joked to the day, it was like, what are you talking about? You know, and so, and one of those things, getting back to my dad, always being gone, always being a business person is the reason I didn't go into business was I was like, I want to be home for my family. And over the last 10 years of building this business, I've had to miss things. I mean, thankfully I've been able to be at more things than not, but I've had sacrifice, been on the road, going and bringing dealers on and relationships and all those different types of things throughout North America. So I travel a lot and I still do. Well, what's the biggest personal sacrifice you had to make? Personal sacrifice? I don't know. That's kind of a hard question. A lot of people I listen to or talk to, it seems like they don't have any friends, personally. I mean, because you only get so much time for everything, right, in life, whether it's business, personal life, or you know, friendships, or family. That's why I was surprised even, I'm glad to hear someone's still married that I talk to, but unfortunately, it seems like, <laughs> you know, honestly, it seems like yeah. that's like the number one thing that entrepreneurs fuck up, really. Yeah. Like, they don't spend time with their family. I agree. And it's something I've been intentional about is spending time. I mean, I'm at all my girls play volleyball. That's their big thing. And so being at the meets, being able to just take off early and not have to tell somebody I'm taking off early, right? Those are things that you just have to be and you have to be intentional about it. You have to be intentional with your relationship with your wife. If you're not, you're going to get divorced. My wife has been great. She's been able to retire since I think, I don't know, five or six years ago from teaching. And so she's a stay-at-home mom and she does all those different things, which has allowed me to travel more and all those type of things. So she's sacrificed a lot has really helped us through some hard times. Well, I mean, yeah, that's good to hear that. Yeah, again, it was top of mind even when you were a kid. So I think that really did help. Some entrepreneurs just forget and think they cannot think about that. But since that happened to you younger, even though it seems like you still ended up working a lot, if you really had to make something, you didn't have to ask somebody, right? Like you were saying. So you're cognizant of that. And so I guess going back to the timeline, again, you sold adjustable patio system, which sounded like a great idea. And then you went full-time with this manufacturing. So if you want to just walk us down the last five or six years, how's it growing? Yeah. And, and, and actually at that time, selling adjustable patio covers was great little cash boost 
into our business. So it wasn't like I took it and put it into my personal savings or anything. It, it went right into Arcadia at the time, which is now Structure. And from that point on, that, that really helped us. About 2016, 2017, I brought on, like I said, like to fire myself and bring in somebody smarter. I brought in Nathan, who is our CFO. He's an ex-banker, uh, kind of brought him over from the dark side. And he has been phenomenal. So very creative on raising capital. One of those things that we did probably about 2017, 2018 was an SBA loan. That's another great way that you can build businesses without giving up equity by taking out loans. And SBA is a great place to do that. I'd recommend that to anybody. So was it a 504 SBA loan? Uh, yes, I believe so. Oh, I know once for like properties, right? That's the only one because that's my background where I know, but I didn't know how many different ones there are. Because actually that same <laughs> podcast interview that I was talking about where he had to go buy his own warehouse. And so he got an SBA loan where they paid like 95% of it, right? And he always put down 5%. So we're just talking about that because it sounds like you were had to eventually, I don't know if you bought warehouses or if you're just renting them out. Now, actually with the SBA, we were able to buy our manufacturing facility. Okay. And then also get some working capital, which has been able to really help us and, and spark that growth. Because in the last five years, we've grown over like 54% year over year. And it's been incredible growth and having SBA really helped us early on there. Was that easy to get? It wasn't the easiest thing. I mean, uh, again, uh, Nathan really helped us out from his banking side of everything. So he did a lot of the heavy lifting and We've done other creative things as well. So SBA would have been one of them. We were able to, a couple of our manufacturing, both of our manufacturing plants up in Dahlonega, we were able to work out deals with development authority. Your local development authority, I would say, go and check them out. If you guys need buildings, they want to put entrepreneurs into buildings so that you bring employees to the county. And so it's a win-win and ours was a phenomenal thing. So we were able to do that before the SBA and then we used the SBA to buy them out. It was just one of these things where it's been a win-win for everybody in, in our county. And we started off and they said, well, how many employees are you going to bring to the county? And at the time, I think I went 49 or something like that because this was back in Obama and it was like, you got over the 50 and it got crazy. 49 and a half. <laughs> yeah, 49 and a half. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember telling them this, this wasn't very long ago. This is five, six years ago. And now we're at 160 employees. I mean, it's been a great thing for the local economy and it's been fun. Okay. But the two places you're talking about are the places in Georgia, right? Or no? Uh, correct. Yes. Okay. Because you, at one point too, you said you open warehouses in Las Vegas? Yes. I Well, actually, I think it was 2016, 2015, 2016. I knew we needed to be in the West Coast because of that shipping issue, right? It's just very long stuff. It gets expensive. Like So we had like one really good dealer in LA. And to ship it from Atlanta to LA was almost the same price tag as what his system cost, right? So it just didn't make sense. And so decided to about 2015, 2016 to open up a short-term lease in Orange County, California. That will allow us to get into that LA, Southern California, which is obviously great for our product. If you think, you know, Southern California, you think of pergolas and outdoor living, right? And it did two things. It really helped us with the local dealer there, was able to grow his business quicker. We knew that in 18 months, we were going to be out and he was going to take over our lease and we were going to go to Las Vegas because it was just a little bit more centralized. It wasn't doing business in California. <laughs> Nothing against California, but it's not a good place to do business. I love all the customers there. And so we had that plan of going into Vegas. So in the middle of 2017, 
a couple things happened. We moved to Las Vegas, which are actually Henderson, Nevada, which you don't know between Las Vegas and Henderson, but it's really south of the airport and southeast is Henderson, Nevada. We were able to go into a decent size, 40, 50,000 square foot facility. And at that point in time, I brought on my second really important leadership team. And actually it was, the guy's name is Attila. And Attila, I played football with him at Western Michigan. Was he the running back? Well, think about the Attila. If you think about Attila the Hun, you get those pictures in there. This was a big right side tackle. So he's about 6'6", 350 pounds, a very intimidating dude, right? And he actually is from Canada <laughs> and lived in the Toronto area. He actually took our, up in 2011, 2012, he became a distributor in Canada for us. But again, Attila was a teacher as well. So he's able to do it on the side and all that. And so when 2017 came around, and I needed somebody to go open up this plant, somebody I trust. Trust is a huge thing in business. All you entrepreneurs know out there that you got to get people you can trust. And so Attila was key for us opening up our West Coast manufacturing. So he came in 2017 and he commuted every week from Toronto. So he'd get on that Sunday night flight and he'd fly to Las Vegas and he'd work all week and his family was still back in Toronto. He would work all week and then he'd fly back. So really committed, trust the guy. And he was able to really, really help us blow up the West Coast in a good way. And that's been awesome. So Holly, I've got an idea for our road trip. How about we do some Q&A from our Patreon members? What do you say? Do you think they're really going to like that? Probably not, but we need to give them more content so they get more bang for their buck in their Patreon membership. I'll tell them where we're going. We're going to the Grand Canyon and turn around and we'll see what happens. But I've been brainstorming a name for this set of Q&A, Holly. Are you ready for it? I finally think I came up with something clever. All right. Hit me with it. All right. So we're going with our two dogs, George and Genevieve. They're in the back seat of the CRV. And then Holly's driving right now. But this is the name that I came up with. Doggy style, colon, a peak from behind dot 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 our route 66 road trip so you get it we got two dogs so we'll call it doggy style and then a peak since we're both peaks we'll spell it p-e-e okay and then this is a route 66 road trip and that episode's out right now for all patreon members so just check your patreon feed I think I've heard of Attila the Hun. Do you know who that is? I had no idea. So what, we're even becoming a history podcast now. Do you know? So history on my Attila. So Attila actually was born in Hungary. I think the guy's been hungry his whole life. Big, big dude. You know, a great friend of mine has been a great employee to structure. And he has sacrificed a lot for us over the last four or five years now. And we're at because of, of people like him and Nathan and Ben and all the other great people that we have on, on staff. Yeah, but... Attila the Hun, the guy who was born in 34 AD. Do you know about him or no? Yeah. I had no idea who he was. I mean, I think I've heard it before, but yeah, you can describe. Asian slash European type of guy that just pillaged and kind of grew his empire by pillaging different towns and, and cities throughout, I think, Asia and, and Europe, right? Am I right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I got Google on my side, but yeah, you're right. They list him as like one of the deadliest warriors of all time. 
Yes, that's the tiller of the hunt. Yes. Oh, okay. So now we learned that too. But well, yeah, because you're mentioning trust, right? I got so many more questions here. I guess you knew you had to go to the West Coast, right? But was it scary like doing that? Because again, you're in Atlanta and like how much work personally did you have to do? And then I have some more follow up questions. Well, for those 18 months in California, it was successful, but we didn't, I didn't have anybody there that I really trusted to run the operations. And so it, it did okay. Dealer was great. So they were able to, really help us out and take over that lease when we decided to go to Las Vegas. But I knew for the West Coast operations to be successful, I needed somebody I knew, I trusted, and Attila was the right man for the job. But the thing is, did you have to like fly back and forth a lot? Because if you're hiring someone yes. and were you, were you doing a similar work schedule for a while, as you said, Attila eventually did? Yeah, we. Yes, I spent a lot of time out in the West Coast. I still try to get out there once a month. Again, we have uh, actually two plants out there right now, actually three that are coming on, third one's coming on. It's really, like I said, blown up in a really good way out there. Attila was able to really bring in some phenomenal people, our plant manager out there, operations people, our dealer side of stuff. And we have some really, really key leaders out there right now that are doing an awesome job. You know, being a company, one of my things as CEO is just trying to keep that company culture. Company culture is a huge thing for me. Every podcast and book that you ever read, they said, you know, you need to have this great culture. But culture is an interesting thing when you really think about it. It is what people are doing when you're not looking. And so, especially when you're 2,500 miles away from another factory and you're sitting here going, I wonder if they're doing the right thing, you know? And thankfully, we've been able to put really good people in there and they are doing the right thing. And I couldn't be more proud. And I totally understand you're bringing in someone you could trust, right? You said Attila, who you knew from college football. Yeah. I mean, did you get screwed at some point? Because it sounds like your trust is a big thing. You keep talking about it. And business-wise, did was it? Because again, I mean, I understand maybe initially with the pergolas and whatnot, you couldn't trust those people because they couldn't get you in in time. But even when you're building this company, what, did you have any other trust issues or something bad hires that well, went south? Absolutely. I've had, you know, I've hired a lot of people. I've fired a lot of people. And it's those ones that didn't work out that usually always came back to- You didn't trust them. I just didn't trust them, right? And they weren't doing the right thing. They didn't have the culture of structure. The faster you can figure that out and fire them, the better you are. I can tell you, it's hand down. I always look at the best in people. It's just, that's who I am, right? I believe the best in everybody. And so I usually give people, you know, a second shot, third shot when I should have just gotten rid of them. And that's something I've learned over time. And definitely for all your listeners in here is if you have any inkling of this employee is not going to work out, get rid of them now. Yeah. And were you having that in the OC when you were just opened up that 18th monthlies? Yeah, we had a, yeah, we had a general manager out there that just didn't fit the culture, had to get rid of them. What do you mean? They weren't coming into work or they're stealing money or what? All the above? Uh, I mean, I think it was a little bit of all the above type type of thing. Yeah, because it does make a big, it's a huge difference. I definitely understand what you're saying. If you're in the East Coast and you have to open something on the West Coast to get that demand, but then you're like, you don't know anyone from the West Coast because you haven't lived there. And and if you hire the wrong manager, he's going to hire all the shitty people too underneath him, right? It seems like. Yep. You're dead on. See, so I'm learning from your tips and we all are. So we appreciate them for sure. So as you do that, as you hire Attila, does everything kind of smooth out? Like you said, over the last couple of years? Yeah. I mean, really the last five years, we have just gone into afterburners and some of our numbers of just growth rates that we have been seeing is almost rivaling some tech companies. And again, tech companies don't have products. They don't have to manufacture stuff. They don't have to inventory stuff. So, you know, we're doing some really crazy things as a manufacturing company. 
And it's all because I have the right people in place. And so what do you see for the future of your company then? I mean, we're sitting here, we're just scratching the surface. Like I said, I think when I first saw this product, I thought, oh, that's a great little niche. Yeah, these louvers open close, that's cute. All that type of stuff. But it really is a multi-billion dollar industry worldwide. I mean, actually, there's some European companies that do sunshade shelter that are a billion dollar company. So I see a lot of blue ocean, as they would say, right? And so I think bringing on some new products, new X's, maybe not a triple X. <laughs> I do not want to get, I, I'm not going to go into that business. I'm sure it's very profitable, but I'm, I'm not going to get into that. You finally came around. It usually takes till the end of the interview for someone to enjoy one of my <laughs> jokes. So. I guess I wanted to touch on one more thing because we haven't talked about that. The residential versus commercial. Like, when did you open that up? Because I could see this being, you know, big players and I mean, you know, hotels, whatnot. I mean, I think some of them already have those quote unquote, dumb pergolas, right? And I, especially the fancy ones where I could see them like really liking your system. So could you tell us like the process of how you expanded that? Yeah. So residential has been kind of that low hanging fruit, as we would say, you know, you can go to home show, show somebody about it. You could put in a mailer. It's easy to kind of attract that. You can obviously, we do a lot of, you know, organic plus paid searches and all those types of things. And you can target homeowners about putting one of these on their decks. And I always talk about the backyard as an ecosystem. There's two ecosystems when you look at the backyard. You have your deck ecosystem and you have a patio ecosystem. And the good thing about it is we're kind of center of both of those. If you want to have coverage, you want to be comfortable outside, you've got to have both. You've got to have one of our systems. So we've been able to grow residential and it's still just growing, right? I mean, people are staying at home. They want to go out and they want it to be their next room, right? So that outdoor room philosophy is where we come in. And then within our system, it's an ecosystem. If you look at our product, that's where you can put those starting probably lights and then fans, sound systems. You can put heaters, cooling systems. You can put motorized screens on it. You can put all different types of things in between our posts that we're starting to come out with, new products that we're going to be coming out with in the future. So it's exciting that, yes, you have a product that just, it goes residential, commercial, industrial. And I can talk, I can hit a little bit on industrial as well after I hit on commercial, but residential is still, there's so many things to do. And that's why I see all this blue ocean ahead of us. Commercially, as you hit on it, restaurants makes a lot of sense, right? Outdoor seating. We do a lot of that. Uh, Hotels, rooftops. People want to go out and use the rooftop. It's unusable space, but you don't want to go out there unless you have coverage. So we're doing a ton of rooftops. And if you look at all the different, I call them channels in the commercial realm. So you have hospitality probably being your biggest one, right? But you have other things like corporate campus and hospitals and you name it, right? You can go through all these different things, country clubs, all those different types of things. We've been blessed. We've been on some pretty large projects, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn. They're trying to get their workforce back to work but their workforce wants to come back and they want to be safe, right? So the safest place these days are outdoors, but they need to feel comfortable. And that's where you get in these working pods. So commercial has really exploded over the last year. COVID has just helped that. And then like I was just talking about industrial, industrial has is starting to really come a thing. So with our louvers, ventilation is a big thing. So you got ventilation, but we also have the slide system. So where you have one pivot that can slide over the other. One of the things that I always got talked about a lot was that I'd be at a trade show or home show and they'd be like, Scott, can I sunbathe under this? I was like, well, you can if you want to look like a zebra. And and so one of the things that I had is I'm a big Tesla fan. I have a Tesla. I like Elon Musk. You know, he's a great entrepreneur. Anyways, I looked at my Tesla and the sunroof, you know, it lifts up and then it goes over the back of the car. And I said, why couldn't we do that with the, the pivot? So let's just put a pivot over a pivot and then let's slide it with a motor. Again, architectural automation. And so what we're starting to see is actually with that is 
we're starting to see industrial manufacturers have applications for our product on it. And so now we're starting to get into that as well. So like I said, sky's the limit, big blue ocean out there, excited about the future. Yeah. We can tell you've read all those business books or listened to them auditorially. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. I mean, thanks for the rundown here at the end too. I mean, it seems like the future is bright for you. I guess if anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out? Email me at scott.selzer, S-E-L-Z-E-R at structure.com. That's spelled S-T-R-U-X-U-R-E.com or dot com, however you wanted to say it. Dot com. There you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or uh, LinkedIn is another good place. Uh, just type in Scott Selzer and you'll find me. I'm the good looking one on there. Well, thanks again for coming on. Any last words of wisdom? I, I, I think the main thing that I heard was, you know, make sure you hire people you can trust. That trust was a big thing for you, but left us with a lot there. So I don't know if there's one last thing that you wanted to leave for all the entrepreneurs listening. I think for all the entrepreneurs out there, it's find something that you're passionate about, number one, but that also solves a problem and that people will pay you for it. If you can put those three things together, you've got a business. And then work really, really hard. One of the things is, you know, you're going to have roadblocks. I had lots of them. I've had employee issues that we just talked about. We've had tons of different roadblocks throughout it. And I always looked at those as opportunities. I still do. If there's a problem in our business today, I go and seek those problems because problems are opportunities to be fixed, right? And when you fix those opportunities, you're much better for it. So get out there and just do it. I know you're about to end, but can I finish with one more story? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's what we're here for. So earlier this spring, actually, we had a, we always do a dealer summit every year. We weren't able to do one in 2020, but we decided to do an in-person 2021 we had all of our dealers in and it was called, it's our structured dealer summit. We bring them in, we do workshops for them during the day. And then at night we have a really nice, you know, award ceremony and we give out awards to the, you know, the best producing dealers, blah, blah, blah. And I always do a speech and my speech, a couple different things, right? All in, you got to get all into whatever you're doing. I love the all in mentality, right? But I also told a story about, it was actually a CEO that visited us probably three to four years ago now. This is about when we were starting to get noticed and being on the Inc. 5000 and people wanting to partner with us and different companies that could see selling some pergolas or cabanas through their companies and so forth. And there's a CEO that came through and I took her on a tour and we sat down and after, you know, she gave me all these compliments and then she sat down and she said, Scott, not too bad for a teacher. And I said, not too bad for a teacher. Like I was thinking in my own mind, like, what is she trying to say to me here, right? That's like not too bad for a teacher. I think she was literally trying to be nice about it. Like, hey, what you've accomplished is not too bad for a teacher. And that just, I mean, I was like, I was peed off, right? I mean, that was like, what are you talking? I mean, first of all, you're putting down teachers. I, I, I don't know what you're trying to do here, right? But I kind of took that. And in my speech, you know, I talked about all these other things. And I think it's really a good testament of why we're so successful today is because structure is made up of, not just all building products people, right? With MBAs, we're very diverse. Some of our top dealers are people that were police officers and teachers and medical equipment type of people. And so you have people from all these different types of industries that kind of are coming together and we really are better together because of all of our diversity. It's just one of those things that I always will remember, you know, it's just not too bad for a teacher. Does that drive you still today? It absolutely does. Well, I guess it still was kind of recent because, yeah, I don't know why they would say that either. 
I mean, I think she was really trying to compliment me, but it was kind of like a backhanded compliment. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to use that. Well, that's important that anyone who said you can't do something, you're going to show them, it makes you work that much harder to show them, right? So, well, yeah, we can tell obviously that you've done well, even for a teacher. That was a joke there. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's, it's amazing. Like, I think you almost downplay your success, to be honest. When I'm looking at this and all the things you had to do, opening something on the West Coast versus the East Coast and... I mean, going from a contractor to a manufacturer, you know, your marketing is fantastic. I think you've done a fantastic job. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. You said you got a lot of smart people up there in North Georgia too. We don't have much of that in North Florida where I'm at, but <laughs> okay. it's been a great interview and thanks for coming on and again, sharing your story. Yeah. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more product-based interviews, then consider these episodes. Episode 75 with John of Sticker Giant. Episode 73 with Steven of Tower Paddleboards. Episode 67 with Jamie Price of Great and Beer. Episode 63 with Dr. Dan Cohen of Breathe Right Strips. Try episode 61 with Andrew of Agora Northwest Coffee Systems. Episode 58 with Alijo of Blue Smart Luggage, a Y Combinator company. Episode 56 with Corey Tall of Climate Sleeping Bags. Or try episode 54 with Mike Otis, where he talks about running a family door company for 20 years. Or episode 52 with Chris White of Shinesty Clothing. And episode 49 with Josh Sherman of Yeah Nice Beanies. Wait, 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 hold on. Before you go, I'm sure you know by now, we have plenty of Patreon episodes to fill your passion bucket up with more business interviews. So check that out. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.